Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Snowstorms and tornadoes tearing through wide parts of the U.S. Central and eastern states are bracing for more harsh weather. Hunter Biden made a surprise appearance on Capitol Hill as House Republicans are voting on resolutions to hold him in contempt of Congress. We have the latest on the hearing. Some New York officials are fired up after a Brooklyn school is used as a migrant shelter. Find out where classes for the displaced kids are being held. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Palestinians from northern Gaza must be allowed to return home as soon as conditions permit. The top diplomat wraps up his visit to Israel and is on the West Bank. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Major cities along the East Coast could see some flooding today as a heavy winter storm dumps rain and snow across wide portions of the U.S. The Storm Prediction Center says over 40 million people are under a severe storm threat. In New York and Pennsylvania, more than 200,000 homes and businesses were still without power as of this morning. Forecasters say New York City and Washington, D.C. could get up to four inches of rain. Winter storm alerts are in effect from parts of Missouri and Iowa through Michigan. Snow piling up in the area is expected to move on, but threats still remain for New England and parts of the Northeast. Tornadoes and high winds blew off roofs and flipped over campers and trailers in the south. The storms killed at least four people yesterday. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the storm's impact. At least four people were killed as the result of storms Tuesday, two killed by falling trees in their vehicles, the others died in their mobile homes. A driver was found dead in a crushed car on a highway in Jonesboro, Georgia, another under similar circumstances in Birmingham, Alabama. An 81-year-old woman in Cottonwood, Alabama was found dead after her trailer flipped multiple times. A suspected tornado in North Carolina killed one person and critically injured two others in the town of Claremont, north of Charlotte. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper declared a state of emergency, lifting size and weight restrictions on the trucking of emergency supplies. In South Carolina, a potential tornado rolled through the small town of Bamberg, leaving some buildings in ruin. Fourteen tornadoes were reported across Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina on Tuesday, with over three million in Florida under tornado watch, including in Tampa and Orlando. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order declaring a state of emergency in 49 of the state's 67 counties. To ensure of abundance of caution, we have the resources needed to help impacted counties and impacted Floridians. Impacted areas include parts of Panama City, where a potential tornado destroyed apartment buildings on its way through. Close to 900,000 homes and businesses across the U.S. were without power Tuesday night, according to PowerOutage.us. That included 180,000 in New York, where Governor Kathy Hochul raised concerns about the storm heading northeast. Hochul says freezing temperatures could be life-threatening if the power goes out. She says flooding is also possible, especially in the Hudson Valley. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy issued a state of emergency to prepare, warning residents not to underestimate the storm coming their way. In the Pacific Northwest, a separate storm system is producing blizzard conditions as it moves over the Rockies and onto the Central Plains, where the storm in some areas has already dropped over a foot of snow. Snow blanketing Colorado had horses huddled in barns and wearing coats. The storm brought trouble to travelers, with around 1,200 flights canceled Tuesday and over 8,500 delayed, according to data from FlightAware. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. New York City is starting to evict illegal immigrants from shelters this week. 
This is the first wave of evictions under the city's new 60-day rule. Mayor Eric Adams announced the policy in October. It gives families with children 60 days notice to find alternative housing. Adams says there is no more room left in the city to house illegal immigrants. The city is spending billions of dollars to care for the people arriving in the Big Apple. Mayor Adams has repeatedly asked the federal government for more assistance. The 60-day rule is an attempt to deal with the ongoing migrant influx. The illegal immigrant crisis heats up as the winter storm slams the East Coast. Students at James Madison High School in Brooklyn, New York, will have to attend classes remotely today. The school's facilities will be used to shelter about 2,000 migrants being housed at a tent shelter at Brooklyn's Floyd Bennett Field. Officials say potential high winds and possible flooding forced them to relocate the illegal immigrants. New York City Councilwoman Ina Vernikov criticized the move. She says students are being punished and forced to bear the brunt of the migrant crisis perpetrated by President Biden. Comptroller Brad Lander found fault with choosing Floyd Bennett Field as a shelter in the first place. He says the significant storm risks were known. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called using the school as a shelter disgraceful. DeSantis says depriving kids of in-person education to house people who don't have a right to be here to begin with is President Biden's America in a nutshell, unquote. For analysis of this move by the New York City Mayor, we have with us Corey DeAngelis. He is a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. DeAngelis is also the author of The Parent Revolution, Rescuing Your Kids from the Radicals Ruining Our Schools. Corey, thank you for joining us. What impact could this move have on the students at James Madison High School in Brooklyn? I mean, look, we've gotten to a point where we can't distinguish reality from parody. I thought this was the headline from a Babylon Bee article, but it's actually happening. And we already know what how this will play out. We saw the school closures with COVID, uh, which they called remote learning, but it wasn't really remote learning. We could have should have called it remotely learning because not a lot of learning happened. And we have data all across the country showing that the longer schools were closed, the more learning lost were, were was affiliated with those closures that were originally induced by the teachers unions. And this also hurt kids, uh, didn't just hurt kids academically, but mentally and socially as well. But it's just, it's just so crazy here that the kids are always at the end of the list of priorities of the adults running the government in blue, blue places like uh, New York City. Um, and, and really, it's it really goes to show you that the people running the system over there see the kids as pawns in their political game, and they don't see the the school system as a means to educate children. They see it as uh, to, as a socialist experiment, and and their latest part of their socialist experiment involves uh, their immigration policies. They could fix this by uh, stopping uh, the sanctuary city status in New York City, but instead. Uh, taxpayers are, are forced to fund this system at over $38,000 per kid per year, and they're not even getting an, an adequate education. And Corey, what kind of impact could this have on the parents who basically have to you know, take care of their kids who are now at home indefinitely? Yeah, we saw this during COVID as well. The extended school closures uh, because and, remote, and so-called remote learning led to females in particular disproportionately leaving the labor force. So look, it's hard to, to work and then also, um, you know, have to take care of your kids when before you were relying on the system to provide some form of child care. Uh, the defenders of the school closures will say, oh, we're still educating the kids because we're providing so-called remote learning, which one, the first issue with that is 
it's not actually a, a an adequate form of education. But two, the taxpayers understood when they're when they're basically agreeing to pay nearly forty thousand dollars per kid per year. They understood that they were going to get some form of childcare services in return for that money as well, uh, not just some you know free version, uh, expensive version of what was usually free uh, Khan Academy. Uh, this this virtual learning, you you can get that for a lot less. So taxpayers should demand that money back. Have the money follow the student. If you if your public school wants to close for illegal immigrants and to replace the kids there with with adults, you should be able to take that thirty eight thousand dollars to a private school that's actually open, or maybe use it. Look, New York City has a charter school cap. They limit the amount of kids that can go to charter schools to protect the government school monopoly. Tens of thousands okay. of kids are desperately waiting to get out of those schools and into charter schools that are that are actually perform a lot better. Latest results showed that black students in charter schools in New York City outperform their peers in the government schools by about 30 percentage points, uh, depending on the outcome that you're looking at. So this it's a night and day difference. Parents know it. They know that the school system run by the government doesn't care about them that much. And when you look at what's happening here today uh, with this with this high school, it really, again, goes to show you the politicians don't care about the kids because the kids don't have a union. Corey, they don't vote. They care about the unions. They care about their political preferences. And that's it. Corey, can you talk about the impact that the immigration crisis is having on the American education system more broadly? Yeah, well, it, look, it's a one size fits all disaster to begin with. Now you're uh, introducing even more students from diverse backgrounds into that school system. It's going to make it more difficult for the teachers to be able to adjust their teaching styles to an even more uh, uh, diverse uh, student body. And when you force kids into these schools just based on where they live, it makes it as difficult as possible for the teachers. It makes it as difficult as possible for the kids. Uh, if you're a teacher trying to teach to the, 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 the high performers and then the lowest common denominator at the same time, that's a recipe for disaster. So we shouldn't be all that surprised when, uh, when we see our proficiency rates uh, dropping every year, despite how much we funnel into the system. Let's let the students choose the schools that work best for them. And then at the same time, when more immigrants are coming in uh, illegally and replacing the kids that are leaving the charter schools and private schools and, and to the homeschool uh, set up, well, that makes it easier for the government schools to, uh, to, to increase their funding levels because they're spending yeah. so much per student. Uh, and so it, it really hampers the, the competitive pressure coming from private charter and, and the homeschool sector where the public schools don't really have to care all that much about families who want to vote with their feet elsewhere. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, right. it's a lot of different problems at once. All right, Corey DeAngelis, Senior Fellow at the American Federation for Children, thank you so much for your time once again. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Next, we're tuning into a House hearing on holding the president's son, Hunter Biden, in contempt of Congress. House Republicans on the Oversight and Judiciary Committees will each hold separate votes on whether or not to hold him in contempt for ignoring a subpoena to appear for a closed-door testimony. The subpoena was part of the impeachment investigation into his father, President Biden. Let's watch. The committee will please come to order. A quorum is present. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess at any time. 
Pursuant to Committee Rule 5B and House Rule 11, Clause 2, the Chair may postpone further proceedings today on the question of approving any measure or matter or adopting an amendment on which a recorded vote or the yeas and nays are ordered. The first order of business is ratifying the new subcommittee roster. The clerks have distributed the roster electronically. I ask unanimous consent that the committee approve the appointments and assignments as shown on the roster. Without objection, the subcommittee roster is approved. The chair also notes that points of order pertaining to the engaging of personalities against the president will not be in order for the duration of this markup, given the underlying subject matter of Hunter Biden's subpoena and this committee's investigation, members must be allowed to speak frankly. Now, pursuant to notice, I call up a report containing a resolution recommending that the House of Representatives find Robert Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for refusal to comply with a subpoena duly issued by this committee. The clerk will report the report which has been distributed in advance. A report containing a House resolution recommending that the House of Representatives find Robert Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for refusal to comply with a subpoena duly issued by this committee. I ask unanimous consent that the report be considered as read and open for amendment at any point. Without objection, so ordered, the chair recognizes himself to offer an amendment in the nature of a substitute. The clerk will please report the amendment. An amendment in the nature of a substitute offered to the contempt report as offered by Mr. Comer of Kentucky. Without objection, the amendment is considered as read and the substitute will be considered as original text for the purposes of further amendment. I now recognize myself for five minutes for a statement on the report. Today, the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability will consider a resolution and report recommending the House of Representatives find Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress for his refusal to comply with a subpoena duly issued by the committee. The House Committees on Oversight and Accountability and Judiciary issued subpoenas to Hunter Biden for a deposition to be conducted on December 13, 2023. On December 13, Hunter Biden failed to comply with the deposition subpoenas relevant to the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry and the committee's oversight investigations. Instead, Hunter Biden appeared on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol where he read a short prepared statement without taking any questions from the media. Our investigation has produced significant evidence suggesting President Biden knew of, participated in, and benefited from his family's cashing in on the Biden name. Based on witness testimony, Joe Biden was the brand his family sold around the world to enrich the Biden family. The Bidens and their associates raked in over $24 million from 2014 to 2019 from countries like China, Russia, Romania, and Kazakhstan. Witness testimony confirms then-Vice President Biden met, spoke by phone, dined, and had coffee with his family's foreign business associates. President Biden has repeatedly lied to the American people about speaking with his son's associates. We've also traced how money from the Biden's China deals and other influence peddling schemes landed in Joe Biden's personal bank account. We plan to question Hunter Biden about this record of evidence during our deposition, but he blatantly defied two lawful subpoenas. Hunter Biden's willful refusal to comply with the committee's subpoenas is a criminal act. It constitutes contempt of Congress and warrants referral to the appropriate United States Attorney's Office for prosecution as prescribed by the law. We will not provide Hunter Biden with special treatment because of his last name. 
All Americans must be treated equally under the law, and that includes the Bidens. Now, Now, recognize uh, Ranking Member Raskin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we believe that um, everyone subpoenaed by Congress, whether it's Hunter Biden or Jim Jordan or Andy Biggs or Steve Bannon or Scott Perry, should engage in good faith compliance with the committee's requests and the committee's subpoenas. We are here today because the chairman has bizarrely decided to obstruct his own investigation and is now seeking to hold Hunter Biden in contempt after he accepted the chairman's multiple public offers to come answer the committee's questions under oath before the American people. This is at the same time that they stand by the categorical non-compliance of Republican members of Congress, like Mr. Jordan, um, who have material information about Excuse the me. violent attack. One, that one, one moment. The cameras cannot be in the well. Thank you. But, but, but I was just uh, making the point that um, the, our colleagues um, who are uh, arraigning Mr. Biden today on charges that uh, he has not rendered 100% compliance um, allegedly with a subpoena are standing by Republican colleagues who've rendered 0% compliance with their subpoenas, uh, including Mr. Jordan, uh, Mr. Biggs, and uh, Mr. Perry, when they have material information about the violent attack on the Capitol, the Congress, and the Vice President of the United States on January 6, 2021. In any event, for the last 11 months, the chairman has repeatedly refused, refused offers from Hunter Biden and his attorney to meet with the chairman and his staff and with members of this committee. On February 9th, just one day after uh, the chairman's first letter to Hunter Biden, Mr. Biden's lawyer responded and offered Chairman Comer to, quote, sit with you and your staff, including the ranking member and his staff, to see whether Mr. Biden has information that may inform some legitimate legislative purpose and be helpful to the committee. The chairman never responded. On September 13th, Mr. Biden's lawyer again wrote to Chairman Comer after a Newsmax interview in which the chairman falsely claimed that he never got a response back to his original letter. Mr. Biden's attorney explained the chairman actually never responded to his offer to sit down and discuss the committee's request, but stated that he remained available to have the discussion, but the chairman again completely failed to respond. Two months later, on November 8th, Chairman Comer and Jordan issued subpoenas to Mr. Biden, requiring his appearance for a deposition on December 13th. In the cover letter, the chairman noted, given your client's willingness to address this investigation publicly up to this point, we would expect him to testify before Congress. Throughout the fall, the chairman urged Mr. Biden <clears throat> to come appear at a public committee Hearing on September 13th on Newsmax, the chairman stated, Hunter Biden is more than welcome to come in front of the committee. If he wants to clear his good name, if he wants to come and say, you know, there weren't 20 show companies, he's invited today. We'll drop everything. On October 31, on a nationwide podcast, 
The chairman stated, we have mountains of evidence. Now we're ready to bring them in. We're in the downhill phase now because we have so many documents and we can bring these people in for depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose. For depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose, and we can ask these questions with evidence. On November 6th, again on Newsmax, our good chairman stated, I will extend that invitation on your show right now, Rob, if the Biden family wants to join Tony Bobolinsky in an official oversight committee hearing and answer questions that the American people have, then that invitation's open right now. They can come on in and do that. On November 28th, Hunter Biden, through his lawyer, agreed to Chairman Comer's multiple public requests. He agreed to appear precisely at a public hearing under oath to answer the committee's questions on December 13th. Exactly what our good colleagues, the Republicans who had information about January 6th, never agreed to do. They never agreed to testify anywhere under oath about what they knew. The letter that came in from Mr. Biden embraced the importance of having a public proceeding that, quote, would prevent selective leaks, manipulated transcripts, doctored exhibits, or one-sided press statements, especially in light of the committee's past use of closed-door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts, Mr. And Chairman, misinform Mr. the Chairman, public. Mr. Chairman, I have an inquiry. State your point. Um, I, I, Mr. Mr. Chairman, don't we have House rules and committee rules uh, regarding uh, subpoenas uh, and then rules about having uh, hearings and, and having questions uh, with, with witnesses we that do. must be followed? Mr. Chairman, I'd like to reclaim my time. state the well, rules, uh, Mr. Chairman? Uh, hold on, hold on. We could just interrupt each Mr. other with an inquiry? Your, your time was expired. I'd like to know the rules of the House and our committee. Read them. They're available to every member. The, the rule state uh, for a deposition, if that's what you're asking, three days notice, you have to have the stenographer and all of that. So that's... that's Mr. Chairman... So just to clarify, right. we can't Mr. have someone Mr. just Raskin's walk time's in. expired. Mr. Chairman, point Do inquiry. any other members wish to be heard? Mr. Chairman, point inquiry. Mr. Chairman, I, I did endure multiple interruptions in my opening. Could I finish? Would that be all Well, you, you went over your <clears> five <throat> minutes, but I'll give you 30 more seconds. Okay. Um, the chairman refused to take yes for an answer from Hunter Biden. Instead, on December 1, they pulled a bait and switch. They changed the terms of their request. They rejected his offer or his acceptance of their offer and insisted that he now come in and sit for a secret closed-door deposition. Welcome back. We're watching a House hearing on holding the president's son, Hunter Biden, in contempt of Congress. House Republicans on the Oversight and Judiciary Committees will each hold separate votes on whether or not to hold Hunter in contempt. That's for ignoring a subpoena to appear for a closed-door testimony. The subpoena was part of the impeachment investigation into his father, President Joe Biden. Let's get back to it. Are we going to continue on with, with this blatant interruption it, this, this is absurd and inappropriate. I intend to give my statement. I don't intend to have anybody interrupted. Uh, I'm not going to interrupt your statements. I think you should have decorum and courtesy and don't act like a bunch of nimrods. You just interrupted a woman. And, and that's five. You know, I got, I got we, permission. Can we I agree? Did, everyone Mr. has Mr. five Chairman, minutes. Can we agree? Point, point of order again. 
The assertion that I interrupted was absolutely false. That's typical of the gentleman who spoke it. I got permission to speak from the chairman. I spoke. I was interrupted yet again by the gentleman who doesn't choose to go through the chair and follow proper order. I encourage us, I, I, I think if we're going to have any respect at all, we need to have proper decorum. Well, you're well said, well said. I'd like to finish. The rules are everyone's going to be recognized for five minutes. Anyone that wants to be recognized will be recognized for five minutes. Ms. Mace has four minutes and 13 seconds left. Chair recognizes Ms. Mace. It does not matter who you are, where you come from, or who your father is, or your last name. Yes, I'm looking at you, Hunter Biden, as I'm speaking to you. You are not above the law at all. The facts in this case are crystal clear. This committee used and issued a lawful subpoena to Hunter Biden, a critical witness in this committee's investigation into Biden family corruption. Hunter Biden and his lawyers did not claim privilege of any kind because clearly he has none. They didn't contest the legitimacy of our reasons for issuing the subpoena, no reasons, because they clearly are legitimate. And yet, he refused to comply. Uh, Trump's family members, Don Trump Jr., he, uh, he did not defy a congressional subpoena. He showed up multiple times for multiple depositions for several hours. Um, in doing so, you know, Hunter Biden broke the law. He did so deliberately. You did so flagrantly. You showed up on the Hill, on the Senate side, the day of that congressional subpoena to defy it and spit in the face of this committee. That's what you did. The question the American people are asking us is, what is Hunter Biden so afraid of? Why can't you show up for a, a congressional deposition? You're here for a political stunt. This is just a PR stunt to you. This is just a game that you are playing with the American people. You're playing with the truth. Um, Hunter Biden wasn't afraid to sell access to Joe Biden to the highest bidder when he was in elected office. He wasn't afraid to trade on the Biden brand, peddle influence, and share those ill-gotten gains with members of, of his family, including Joe Biden. He wasn't afraid to compromise the integrity of the presidency and vice presidency by involving Joe Biden in shady business deals with our foreign adversaries. But Hunter Biden, you were too afraid to show up for a deposition. And you still can't today. Um, I believe that Hunter Biden should be held completely in contempt. I think he should be hauled off to jail right now because it wasn't long ago, two of my friends on the other side of the aisle, um, that you also believed in the, the power of a congressional subpoena. Not long ago at all. You believed in holding those who refused to comply with congressional subpoena accountable. And I stood with each and every one of you. I am the only member in this room today who has held a member of my own party in contempt of Congress for not showing up for a subpoena. And I see nothing but complete hypocrisy on the other side of the aisle. The ranking member of this committee even so eloquently put it, the lesson is please tell your children out there in America, if you get a subpoena to go before Congress, go. You have a legal responsibility to do so. So the hypocrisy is stunning. What are we to tell our children today? There's nothing the other side can say with a straight face. As the only member of this committee to vote to hold a member of contempt of my own party, let me be clear, this should not be a partisan issue. If Congress issues a subpoena, you show up, period. This is not a responsibility we take lightly. It brings no joy for us to do this, but the president's son broke the law and must be held accountable in the same way anybody else would. I urge my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to do so. And my last message to you, Hunter Biden, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. And will I the gentlelady yield for a question? Will the gentlelady yield? 
Will my friend yield from South Carolina? Sure. Um, I, I do want to commend the gentlelady who was the only Republican who stood up uh, and voted to hold in contempt the Republican members of the House who blatantly and categorically refused to comply with subpoenas that came from the bipartisan January 6th committee. I would like to ask my friend Ms. Mace from South Carolina um, whether she's aware of all the case law which says that the committee has to engage in good faith interaction with the witnesses they've called and they're supposed to arrive at a solution. And what do you think about the fact that the chairman on multiple occasions gave this witness the opportunity to come before the full committee and he agreed to that? We issued a congressional subpoena, and I know with your constitutional law background, you know exactly what that means, and he should have showed up. And because of your vote and because of your statements, you should be voting to hold, hold this man in contempt of Congress today, right now, if you're going to be consistent on your own policies and your own words. Gentlelady's time's expired. Chair, recognize Mr. Moskowitz for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's good to see you after a long break. So... I'm listening to the gentlelady from South Carolina about the witness being afraid to come in front of the committee. It's interesting. He's here. He doesn't seem to be too afraid. In fact, for some reason, the chairman, who on multiple occasions invited the witness to come on TV, Apparently, the chairman wants to pretend like his statements on television or in interviews don't matter. But it didn't happen once. It didn't happen twice. It happened multiple times. The chairman said the witness can choose whether to come to a deposition or to a public hearing in front of the committee. The witness accepted the chairman's invitation. It just so happens the witness is here. If the committee wants to hear from the witness, and the chairman gave the witness that option, then the only folks that are afraid to hear from the witness with the American people watching are my friends on the other side of the aisle. I don't know if there's a proper motion, Mr. Chairman, but I'll make a motion. Let's vote. Let's take a vote. Who wants to hear from Hunter right now, today? Anyone? Come on. Who wants to hear from Hunter? Motion's out of order. Yeah. No one. So I'm a visual learner, and the visual is clear. Nobody over there wants to hear from the witness. Oh, there's one. Thank you. Will you yield for a question? I'm not there yet, but I will eventually. Uh, so there's no one, well, other than one or two, that want to hear from the witness. So the majority of my colleagues over there, including the chairman, don't want to hear from the witness with the American people watching. So. Mr. Chairman, are, I, I just want to hear from you. Will you acknowledge that you invited the witness on television to choose whether he could come to a public hearing? And do you stand by your words, or do you renege that invitation to the witness? To answer the question I've said repeatedly, the, after the deposition, Mr. Biden can come in front of a public hearing. Mr. Chairman, I don't want to play the video, but that is not what you said on television multiple times. Uh, we have the quotes. We can put them up. You said the witness can choose between a deposition. Listen, or Mr. Moskowitz, Mr. Biden doesn't make the rules. We make the no, rules. That, no, Mr. Chairman, you make the rules. 
And the rule you made is that he can choose. Uh, that, those, the rule is... Those were your... Those were your words. Reclaiming we, my time. He was issued two lawful subpoenas. Re reclaiming my time, Mr. Chairman. No, you issued right. those subpoenas after he took you up on your invitation to come, and then you were like, "Oh no, no! Oh my God! What did we? What did I do? I invited him to come so the American people can hear his side of the story. I put my foot in my mouth. So now I must bury him in the basement where we can decide what we're going to release to the public so that we can continue to tell that story, Mr. Chairman." You have said multiple times that this is not about Hunter. It's about Joe Biden. And even this morning on Mornings with Maria, she asked another simple question. The question you have been asked multiple times, which is, do you have evidence to impeach the President of the United States? Before you said, I hope so. Today you said, I think so. And the answer is, you don't. And you still don't. And so we continue to be here and have these charades. To my colleagues who talk about lawful subpoenas, I appreciate the gentleladies, the gentlelady from South Carolina who voted to, to hold people in contempt. Listen, I'll, I'll make this bipartisan. I'll vote for the Hunter contempt today. You can get my vote. You can get my vote. But I want you to show the American people that you're serious. Here is the subpoena to Representative Scott Perry, who did not comply. I'd like to enter this into the record. Here is the subpoena to Mark Meadows. I'd like to enter this into the record who did not comply. Here is the subpoena to Jim Jordan, who did not comply with a lawful subpoena. I'd like to enter that into the record. Here is the subpoena to Mo Brooks, who did not comply. I'd like to enter that into the record. Here is the subpoena to Mr. Biggs, who did not comply. I'd like to enter that into the record. And here's the subpoena to Mr. McCarthy, who did not comply. I'd like to enter that into the record. There's an amendment coming to add some of those names into the contempt order. You vote to add those names and show the American people that we apply the law equally, not just when it's Democrats, right? It's a crime when it's Democrats, but when it's Trump and the Republicans, it's just fine. No, show that you're serious and that everyone is not above the law. Vote for that amendment, and I'll vote for the Hunter Biden contempt. I yield back. Gentlemen, time's expired. Chair, recognize Ms. Green from Georgia for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, excuse going? me, Hunter. Oh, apparently, you're afraid of my words. Uh, Israeli forces discover a large weapons production site in Gaza. The underground workshops connect to a vast tunnel network. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The U.S. and British navies shot down 21 Houthi missiles and drones launched from Yemen yesterday. It's one of the largest Houthi attacks to take place in the Red Sea in recent months. The U.S. military called it a complex attack carried out by the Iran-backed group. U.S. Central Command says the barrage included 18 one-way attack drones, two anti-ship cruise missiles and one anti-ship ballistic missile. The attack was launched toward international shipping lanes in the southern Red Sea, where dozens of merchant vessels were traveling. There were no ships damaged in the attack, and no injuries were reported. Three destroyers took part in the shootdown of the barrage. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says Israel must allow Palestinians back to their homes in Gaza as soon as conditions allow, and that they must not be displaced. The comments from the top diplomat came after a day of talks with top Israeli officials in Tel Aviv. 
Blinken reaffirmed U.S. support for Israel and, quote, ensuring that October 7th can never happen again. He's also calling on Israel to do more to minimize civilian casualties. And he discussed efforts to release hostages still being held by Hamas. Blinken says Israel has agreed to a plan to allow a U.N. assessment mission to northern Gaza when the war starts another shift to a new phase. He says that will determine what needs to be done to allow those displaced to return safely to their homes. Lincoln met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank today. That was to discuss Gaza's future and the Palestinian Authority's possible role after the war. Lincoln is currently visiting Bahrain as an unplanned addition to his Middle East trip. He is expected to return to Tel Aviv tonight. Israeli forces say they have located the largest weapons production site in Gaza since the war began. The underground workshops produced long-range missiles capable of hitting targets in northern Israel. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the arms stash. A variety of metal tubes, shell casings, and other components line stacks above ground. The Israeli military says Hamas used them to produce copies of standard munitions, like mortar shells in subterranean workshops. These are the 100 kilometers rockets that were being built here and then being tunneled down with elevators to a big tunnel that is designed especially for those cages of rockets. A tunnel network supplied the weapons from these facilities to Hamas forces throughout the Gaza Strip. This factory, they make the rockets here by using the iron to do 120 millimeters. They they take him down in the elevator here in the shaft. Israeli troops have destroyed a large number of underground tunnels since they launched the ground operation. Israel will not attack civilian factories. This is Hamas. This is the big challenge here. How to destroy the military framework like we're seeing here. Israeli officials say Hamas deliberately builds tunnels and other military infrastructure in civilian areas. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Israel is facing genocide charges in the International Court of Justice. South Africa brought these charges over Israel's handling of the war in Gaza. For analysis of the claims contested by the U.S., we're joined by Alex Trayman. He's the CEO and Jerusalem Bureau Chief for the Jewish News Syndicate. Alex Trayman, thank you so much for joining us. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says the charges of genocide against Israel are meritless. How does South Africa back its claim up? Well, you know, the, the International uh, Criminal Court and the United Nations have been uh, biased against Israel for, for many, many years. And it's, it's really ironic that uh, South Africa, which was guilty of a horrific apartheid, would turn around and uh, accuse uh, Israel of genocide when Israel is actually very poor at the entire concept of genocide by virtue of the fact that more Palestinians live in, is in Israel and in the disputed territories uh, every single year. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, it's, it's embarrassing that South Africa has uh, brought this case and, and it's embarrassing that it's being tried. And why do you think they're bringing the case yet, given that? 
Well, there's certainly a lot of anger around the world about the about the conflict, uh, but uh, the Palestinian uh, propaganda machine has been accusing Israel of all the things that it's been doing uh, against uh, the Jewish people or, or attempting to do uh, against the Jewish people, and uh, you know they're trying to rally the support of countries like South Africa uh, to and, and others to to bring this case. Um, it's it's not clear why they think they can get away with it, but and we'll have to see what the what the uh, results of the trial will be. And so what do you think Israel's defense will be? Well, as I mentioned, first of all, Israel is sending its, uh, one of its top legal jurists, Aron Barak, who was a former president of the Supreme Court. Uh, Barak himself, not not very uh, a big fan of the current government of the state of Israel and the judicial reforms that this government uh, tried to install. Uh, so it's clear that uh, Israel is sending a uh, a very liberal uh, jurist that's not there to be a uh, a flack or a spokesman for the government that will take the case uh, very seriously, and he will use every fact available to him to to rebut the outlandish claims that Israel's committing a genocide. And and how are accusations of genocide used and manipulated by Israel's enemies and those of the United States? Well, first of all, let's understand how the whole genocide convention came came even to be. I mean, it, it came in the aftermath of World War II, when uh, Germany and the Nazis committed a, a real genocide, murdering six million Jews. The genocide convention was put in place to make sure that an event like the Holocaust against the Jewish people would never happen again. And now uh, that it would be cynically turned against the state of Israel, when you have uh, genocidal maniacs like in Iran and their terror proxies like Hezbollah and the Houthis and, and Hamas uh, calling for Israel to be wiped off the map and calling for uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which means that there would be no Jewish state, uh, that this entire narrative would be flipped on its head uh, is really, as Anthony Blinken said, completely meritless. How could the ruling impact Israel's aim of destroying Hamas and de-radicalizing Gaza? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, obviously the the court can, the the case of the court will take years. Okay, uh, and it's quite likely that the the conflict will be over long before the court makes an official ruling. However, the court can uh, make an injunction uh, even in in the next coming weeks, and they could call for an immediate ceasefire for Israel to to stop the fighting. But uh, these injunctions that are made by the court uh, tend to have a uh, a, a not very strong track record of of enforceability. They're not enforceable, and, and I cannot imagine that Israel would stop its campaign on the basis of uh, what the international court says in a kangaroo case. All right, Alex Trayman, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to discuss Meta's new safety features. Meta announced Tuesday that it is expanding its youth safety efforts by releasing new settings for teen users on Facebook and Instagram. Don, how do the new features improve safety for teens? Well, first of all, Meta is saying that these new features will be added on top of its existing slate of uh, privacy and parental oversight tools. So uh, in a blog post yesterday announcing uh, the new rules, uh, Meta said that it wants teens to have a safe, and age-appropriate experience on its apps, whether that's Facebook or whether that's Instagram. So some of the new features include uh, content restrictions and as well as 
hiding of search terms and search results. So this comes after uh, by uh, after uh, Meta, of course, has uh, faced scrutiny over its impact on, on teens with its platforms. Uh, we've all heard about that. And Meta said that we'll start hiding age inappropriate content. Uh, so that's things like, according to Meta, post disgusting uh, discussing self-harm and eating disorders uh, and nudity from teens' feeds and stories. And the content will be e hidden even if it's posted by someone that uh, they themselves follow. Uh, so it's making it a lot harder with these new restrictions. Uh, Meta is also making it so that teens, uh, all teens actually on Facebook uh, and Instagram will be placed into its most restrictive content recommendation settings. Uh, this will be uh, making it by default more difficult as well uh, to come across potentially sensitive content uh, in terms of search or explore. And this is a policy that was previously only applied to new teens signing up to uh, the platforms. And the changes are said to be rolled out for children on the, under the age of 18 in the coming months. Fascinating. So do you think this will put to rest all of the concerns about youth health? Well, uh, certainly updating teens' uh, settings uh, could come to uh, address at least some of those concerns uh, because with the new update, Meta is also expanding uh, the range of search terms that it will hide. So those are also related to self-harm, suicide, and eating disorders. And this list will also be updated in the upcoming weeks. Uh, so going forward, there's going to be prompts as well asking teens to review their privacy settings and safety settings. Uh, so they'll be prompted to do that regularly. And it's, offer, it's going to offer them an easy one-tap way to turn on recommended privacy settings. And with that, it's going to automatically change settings to uh, restrict who can repost their content, share their reels, tag message, or mention them. Uh, so a bit more privacy by default here on Meta's part. And another important change being added to uh, Meta's existing teen safety and parental control tools is that uh, the ability for parents to see how much time their kids are spending on the company's apps. And it's going to have reminders for them to take a break if the scrolling session is a bit too long. And as well as there's going to be notifi notifications for parents if teens uh, report other users. So a lot of features here that's going to be potentially addressing some of the concerns, but we'll see. Mm. All right, thank you so much, Don. All right, thank you. And $7 billion in additional funding, lawmakers want to extend an internet discount program for low-income households. The Affordable Connectivity Program is set to run out of funding by the end of April. That would mean abrupt price hikes for the tens of millions of people who benefit from the program. The ACP provides monthly $30 discounts on internet service for low-income households and up to $75 for eligible households on tribal lands. Households also qualify if, a member of any, if any member of the home participates in another federal aid program like Medicaid or school lunch programs. The $7 billion legislation is expected today in both the House and Senate. It represents $1 billion more than the White House proposed to Congress last year. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. An Iran-backed terror group has an ominous message for the United States and the Houthi group explains their attack on a U.S. ship. Hunter Biden sparks chaos in Congress by making a sudden appearance at a House hearing. Republicans there are considering a resolution to hold him in contempt of Congress. We have the latest. House Republicans moving ahead with efforts to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The first hearing is now underway. Questions remain about U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin after his prostate cancer diagnosis was revealed. We go over some concerns about Austin's absence. A federal judge in Nevada is not taking former President Trump off the ballot. We bring you why the judge dismissed a lawsuit. The annual CES Tech Show in Las Vegas is underway, and a range of companies are showing off their latest products. And there's something for everyone, especially car lovers. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hunter Biden showing up in person at a House committee hearing as Republicans weigh a resolution to hold him in contempt of Congress. That's after the president's son defied a subpoena to appear for a closed-door interview last month. The younger Biden was accompanied by two of his attorneys in the hearing room. He said he would testify if allowed. His sudden appearance immediately sent the meeting room, the meeting into chaos, as lawmakers argued. Who bribed Hunter Biden to be here today? That's my first question. Um, second question, you are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here and... M Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman... If the gentle lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now, Mr. Chairman. Let's take a vote and hear from I'm Hunter speaking. Biden. What are, are you afraid of? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Order, order, order. 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 Are women space. allowed to speak in here or no? Are women allowed to speak in here or no? Because you keep interrupting me. I'll interrupt the chairman. I don't know that he's a lady. I think that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now, and go straight to jail. Our nation is founded on the rule of Come law. Come on. Are we going to continue on with with this blatant interruption? It, this this is absurd and inappropriate. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer called it a criminal act that Hunter Biden refused to comply with congressional subpoenas. Hunter Biden's legal team insisted that he would only answer questions in a public setting, claiming that the closed door testimony could be misused. The resolutions will go to the full House for a vote if approved. And if Hunter Biden is held in contempt, the decision of whether to criminally charge him will be left to the Justice Department. The votes are part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Today's showdown comes one day before the younger Biden is scheduled to plead not guilty to separate tax charges in Los Angeles. He's already facing felony counts related to a firearm purchase. The House Homeland Security Committee holding its first impeachment hearing for Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans argue that he is responsible for the crisis at the southern border. Today is a solemn occasion as this committee begins official impeachment proceedings in the matter of Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. 
and his handling of America's borders since taking office in February 2021. Our evidence makes it clear. Secretary Mayorkas is the architect of the devastation that we have witnessed for nearly three years. Republicans have been pushing to impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security over alleged dereliction of duties. They argue he hasn't upheld the country's immigration laws amid the record number of border crossings. Democrats have decried the move as partisan politics. Mayorkas himself called on Congress to fix the immigration system and defended his enforcement of the law. The Department of Homeland Security criticized the impeachment effort and called for bipartisan work to address immigration challenges. If successful, Mayorkas would be the second ever cabinet official impeached in American history. The first was Secretary of War William Belknap in 1876. But even if Mayorkas is impeached by the GOP-controlled House, it's unlikely that he will be convicted in the Democrat-majority Senate. Officials who work closely with Mayorkas say he does not plan to resign. And House Republicans, as you heard earlier, are pursuing charges to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. He defied a subpoena to appear for a closed-door deposition. That was part of the House's impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Here with us live to discuss is attorney and former Congressman Bob Barr. Barr was one of the House managers during President Bill Clinton's impeachment trial. Bob, welcome. As a former U.S. representative and someone involved in the Clinton impeachment proceedings, how would you compare the current House GOP's pursuit of the Hunter Biden contempt resolution to past investigation processes? It's really like night and day. When we uh, held impeachment hearings uh, against President Clinton, we had a very clear agenda. We had a very focused approach, and the impeachment was focused through one committee, not a range of committees, but just through the Judiciary Committee. And at the time, the uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee was Henry Hyde, a very senior member of the House uh, with a very distinguished career. Now what is happening is the Republicans, uh, despite the fact that there is plenty of evidence to engage in an impeachment inquiry, have so diluted the process through different committees being involved and so many different members uh, being involved that it's very difficult to see what the path forward is. And it simply creates all manner of opportunities for mischief like we saw today. And what do you make of Hunter Biden showing up? at this hearing? It, uh, it's circus. Uh, he uh, apparently uh, was there as part of uh, a film crew uh, that is making a, uh, a, a documentary on the man. Uh, he has no intention of complying with a subpoena. He has no intention, apparently, of uh, answering questions legitimately and under oath and truthfully. Uh, and the Republicans should know that. Uh, rather than engage in this type of diffused and disjointed operation, what the Republicans ought to do is change their focus, place this matter solely within the Judiciary Committee, and allow other committees to do or engage in matters that are important to actual voters. And I, I suspect that uh, Hunter Biden is not an issue that's going to be on the minds of many independent or moderate Republicans in the coming elections. And that's going to hurt Republican candidates, I think. Now, there has been a tussle, as you've alluded to, over whether to have the, this deposition publicly or behind closed doors. What would be the benefits or uh, disadvantages to each of the, those formats for the public? 
Doing it uh, bifurcated makes sense if it's through a single committee. Many times what you want to do is have a private deposition uh, handled by uh, counsel, by, by staff, uh, to focus in, hone in, and clarify the issues that then can go before the committee itself in open session. This avoids uh, a lot of the you know, back and forth and lack of clarity if you simply rush right into uh, open hearings. In open hearings, as, as you know, each member only gets five minutes and it's very difficult to develop a narrative. Uh, if you engage and have a deposition beforehand, it can make for a much smoother and more and stronger and more focused public hearing. So there's no problem with that, but the Republicans just have, have not handled it very well with these different committees and all these different members having a go at it. And you mentioned some of the potential uh, flow on effects of these recent events on this issue. What implications might a contempt resolution have uh, for the broader political landscape? Uh, really very little. Uh, this is a problem, uh, of course, when we have uh, the House uh, and the, uh, the administration in different political hands. Uh, a contempt citation, if it were to pass the committee, if it were to then pass the House, would go to the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia in order to enforce it. Congress can enforce it. Uh, and the U.S. attorney for the Department of Justice uh, works uh, for President Biden, uh, ultimately, and is not going to uh, do anything with it. So at the end of the day, it really has, has little meaning other than in a political context. And if that's all the Republicans are after, uh, I don't think it's really going to accomplish very much, to be honest. All right. Bob Barr, attorney, former congressman and Clinton impeachment manager. Thank you so much. The Walter Reed Medical Center said yesterday that prostate cancer is what kept Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin out of the loop this week. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on some questions about the secretary that still remain. Tuesday's revelation came days after the Pentagon announced that Austin had been in the hospital since New Year's Day. One question that remains is why it took so long for Austin to tell President Biden and the public. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder said the delay happened because Austin's chief of staff was sick at the time and fewer people were working during the holidays. Another question on some people's minds is whether there will be any consequences. The White House on Tuesday ordered a review of protocols to determine how cabinet officials delegate authority. Despite the mounting questions about why Austin and his staff failed to notify the White House, Congress and the National Security Council, officials have insisted that Biden is standing by Austin. Another question is whether any laws or policies were violated. This in light of ongoing wars and tensions in the Middle East, and Austin's role in advising on nuclear matters and responsibility for over a million troops worldwide. Yet another question troubling some is whether Austin planned to tell Biden about his diagnosis. A Pentagon spokesman stated that Austin did plan to share the diagnosis with Biden eventually, even if there had been no political scandal. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Ecuador's police today carried out at least a dozen arrests related to a recent wave of violence in the country. The commander of the police said forces conducted Operation Counter-Strike, 
which led to the confiscation of weapons, Molotov cocktails, and ammunition. On Tuesday, a wave of violence was unleashed around the nation. It prompted President Daniel Noboa to name 22 gangs as terrorist organizations to be hunted by the military. At least seven police officers were kidnapped and there were several explosions. In the worst of these incidents, gunmen with explosives stormed a TV station on air in Ecuador on Tuesday. Police arrested the men who burst into the studio with guns, grenades and dynamite. The Houthi terrorists in Yemen said today they attacked a U.S. ship. They said the vessel was providing support to Israel. A spokesman for the group said they used a large number of ballistic and naval missiles as well as drones. The spokesman did not say what damage, if any, the vessel suffered. He called the operation a preliminary response to a previous U.S. attack that killed 10 Houthi members. Meanwhile, the Iraqi terrorist group Kataib Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, is also speaking out. A spokesman said Tuesday that attacks against U.S. military positions in the region will continue even after the Israel-Hamas war ends. The spokesman said that their group has developed cruise missiles and short-range ballistic missiles. The terrorist group says they have used them in addition to exploding drones. Coming up, the Fulton County District Attorney investigating Trump is facing a subpoena. See the latest developments regarding allegations of her improper romantic relationship with a colleague. And the FBI calls its January 6th investigation bigger than 9-11. A new documentary takes a deep dive into some of the personal stories behind those investigations. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Now let's look at these legal battles that former President Trump is facing, starting with Nevada, where a federal judge is siding with Trump, allowing him to stay on the 2024 ballot there. Judge Gloria Navarro is dismissing a lawsuit brought by John Anthony Castro. He's a long-shot Republican presidential candidate. Castro sued to remove Trump from the ballot based on the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. The judge dismissed the case, saying Castro lacked standing to file the suit because he's suffered no injury. Castro claimed the industry of receiving fewer votes if Trump is on the ballot. According to the judge, Castro is creating his own injury in this scenario. The judge also cited previous remarks by Castro where he admitted he had no serious intention to pursue a presidential campaign. And over to a case in New York City where Trump reportedly plans to deliver his own closing argument this week. That's in the civil fraud trial against the former president. Trump's comments on Thursday are set to be delivered in addition to his legal team's summations. And lastly, to round up the updates regarding the former president's legal battles, we take a look at a case in Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is investigating former President Trump. The Wall Street Journal now reports that Willis has been subpoenaed to testify at a colleague's divorce hearing. The colleague in question is Nathan Wade. He's a lawyer Willis hired as a special prosecutor in the Trump case. On Monday, a co-defendant in Trump's case accused Willis and Wade of having an improper romantic relationship. 
Wade and the DA allegedly took lavish vacations. The co-defendant says Wade paid for them using the Fulton County funds his law firm received. The DA authorizes his compensation, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The development of Willis receiving the subpoena this week could shed new light on the alleged affair. And a high-ranking GOP senator is the latest in leadership to back Trump's bid for the White House. Republican Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming made the announcement yesterday. During an interview, the senator expressed the need for a strong Republican conservative House and Senate and wants Trump back in the White House. Barrasso now joins other members of the GOP leadership in endorsing Trump's re-election campaign. Trump thanked Barrasso in his social media post for his endorsement. The announcement comes less than a week from the Iowa caucus taking place on January 15th. Trump continues to lead in the Republican presidential primary. Next up, after three years of investigation, the Epic Times has a new documentary taking a closer look at some of the events during and after the January 6th Capitol breach. Following the January 6th investigation, the biggest investigation in FBI history. There are more than 1,100 arrests, and they show no signs of, of slowing down. When you take an oath, you have to abide by it. They're just going to identify you on video, arrest you, and then figure out what the evidence is after that. We spoke with the co-producer of The Real Story of January 6th, Part 2, Joe Hanneman, to learn more. Joe Hanneman, what new information has come to light about the events of January 6th since the first part of this documentary series? Well, it, there's so much that we've learned since we made the first documentary in the middle of 2022. We probably could have done two documentaries instead of the, the one that we've just put out. There's just so many things going on. Uh, and we tried to take a look behind the scenes and really humanize uh, the stories behind the defendants and behind the FBI agents and uh, behind the judicial system to try to, you know, try to give some more perspective. Um, because those types of things haven't gotten much play in the corporate media. And that's one of the goals we've always had is what, what are we missing? What has been left out? And what has been suppressed, especially yeah. evidence like video. So, uh, so that's where we've kind of taken our focus. And, and this is a snapshot. There's, there's much more that I'm sure we will be working on, but this gives us a good snapshot. Mm. So what are the range of people that you spoke with in this investigation? Well, a, a lot of the, the film focuses on the Munn family from Border, Texas, a family of five. Five of, of the eight members of the family went to January 6th. Uh, they took uh, their daughters and one son there. It was a high school graduation trip. And they ended up going into the Capitol and really did nothing more than take a walking tour and went into the Capitol Visitor Center. And they picked up garbage. They were picking up trash, trying to make, make tidy. Uh, they didn't, certainly didn't break anything. And when they were done picking up the trash, they, they tried to find a way out of the building because it was getting so crowded in there. And they were all prosecuted. Um, they had SWAT raids at three of their homes simultaneously. 
uh, and, and the granddaughters, the six, seven-year-old, were, were put between tactical agents and sisters who, who couldn't even hold hands for comfort when all this was going on and their mother was being handcuffed. So it, it really takes a look at the, some of the real human issues that you're not going to hear a lot about, the kind of hidden, hidden tragedies and hidden stresses on these families. And so we sprinkle that throughout the film, the different aspects of what the Munn family went through, because they are, I don't want to necessarily say typical, but there are many uh, similar situations out there, uh, families that have been through this and had multiple family members prosecuted. And are there any questions that your investigation has sparked that you're still trying to answer? Well, one big one has just landed before the Supreme Court, and that is uh, the Department of Justice has a very novel, unusual use of uh, corporate fraud law to prosecute uh, January 6th defendants for a 20-year felony. It's called obstruction of an official proceeding or corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. Now, they consider the official proceeding to be the joint session of Congress uh, that started on that day to uh, to tally the electoral college votes. But the, the law that they're using to do that uh, was a corporate fraud reform bill from 2002. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Capitol. It had absolutely nothing to do with First Amendment protests. Uh, and it is the most frequently charged felony among all of the more than uh, 1,200 defendants to date. And the Supreme Court... Uh, you, know, you can you can assume that they at least want to take a closer look at it, and we expect by June to have uh, to have a ruling on that. That could really upend the entire prosecution effort because of how widespread this is, and how unusual it is to to really twist the law to fit your purpose. And that's that's really what they've done. So we just we don't know how that's going to turn out, but it has great potential to impact many hundreds of defendants. So lastly, Joe, why do you think it's important for viewers to get a chance to see your documentary, particularly if they weren't there that day? Well, it's important to see context, and that's something you will see when you watch this film. You're going to see many different stories, many different players, from investigators uh, to family members who are defendants, but it'll put it in context. And oftentimes, context has been missing in prosecutions, in evidence that's put into court, uh, so this t tries to take a much broader look at things and give people a sense of perspective because there are many agendas that are pushed in the telling of the January 6th story. And, you know, we're trying to avoid the agendas and to flesh out the picture. All right, Joe Hanneman, thank you so much. To learn more about what Joe uncovered while making this investigative documentary, you can visit jan6realstory.com. You can also watch part two of the real story of January 6th there and on Epic TV. If you haven't already, consider subscribing to Epic TV to access this and more original documentaries, news and lifestyle shows, movies and other great content. You'll also find all your favorite NTD shows there. A billionaire hedge fund manager is trying to reshape Harvard University. William Ackman is endorsing a bid by four dissident alumni to join Harvard's board of overseers. Ackman has donated about $50 million to Harvard. He was among many calling for Claudine Gay to resign as the university's president. He's now endorsing the four Harvard alumni who earned undergraduate law and business degrees from Harvard to join the board. 
The Board of Overseers is the school's second highest governing body. It has the power to approve or reject the hiring of Harvard's president. Ackman has criticized Harvard for not doing enough to protect its students from anti-Semitism after the October 7th attacks by Hamas. And the House Education Committee on Tuesday asked Harvard for a list of documents. That's in relation to a House probe on anti-Semitism at the school. The requested documents include a list of posts by Harvard students and staff targeting Jews. Lawmakers gave the school two weeks to produce the records. A Harvard spokesperson said the university was reviewing the letter and will be in touch with the committee. Coming up, House Speaker Mike Johnson met with Taiwan's new de facto ambassador to the U.S. This came just days before the island's presidential election. What's the speaker's message to Taiwan? And the U.S. and the Chinese regime are holding military talks again. Hear why officials say the talks are crucial. We'll have the details soon when we return. Governor Ron DeSantis versus Nikki Haley. A debate between the two is set to unfold tonight in Iowa as the nation's first caucus is just five days away. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao, who is in Des Moines, Iowa. Good afternoon to you, Iris. What are we expecting to see tonight, and how is former President Trump in the spotlight there, here? Good afternoon to both of you. So tonight here in Iowa, DeSantis and Nikki Haley are set to face off at a CNN debate set for 9 p.m. Eastern time. And they're really battling to become the top alternative to former President Trump, who's enjoying over 50 percent of support here in Iowa, according to polls. Both DeSantis and Haley have been ramping up their attacks on former President Trump in recent days while they're campaigning here in Iowa. Nikki Haley, for example, has been telling supporters that chaos follows Trump and that she is the new generational leader who can bring order. Meanwhile, Governor DeSantis has been really trying to project himself as a more capable leader than Trump, who's able to deliver on promises on the conservative agenda. He's been saying that Trump did not finish his job on fixing the southern border. That he's not pro-life enough and you know he's been going after Trump increasingly in the recent days and just last night for example after participating at a town hall here in Iowa DeSantis told us at a press conference that despite the polling showing President Trump leading in the polls he thinks that voters here in Iowa are able to turn that over saying that it's time to end a self-fulfilling prophecy of Trump winning in 2024. Meanwhile, former President Trump has also been criticizing both Governor DeSantis and Nikki Haley, saying they're disloyal and, and, and unreliable, and also even mocking them for trying so hard to compete for the second place. Meanwhile, Trump tonight is skipping that debate. Instead, he's participating at another town hall by Fox News right across town here in Des Moines, Iowa. And we do expect to hear more from him, especially on the point that he's trying to make in recent days, which is his supporters are more loyal to him than the supporters of other candidates to them, so that his supporters are more likely to come out to actually caucus next Monday on January 15th here in Iowa, despite temperatures plunging to below zero on that day. Back to you. All right. Thank you so much, Iris. A group of Hasidic Jewish worshippers were arrested in Brooklyn on Monday. The incident took place during a dispute over a secret tunnel built beneath a historic Brooklyn synagogue. 
The arrest set off a brawl between police and those who tried to defend the makeshift passageway. Video shows officers removing a man from a tunnel built into the synagogue. A group of onlookers then began shoving police and tossing wooden desks. A spokesperson for a Hasidic Jewish group said extremist students have broken through the walls of adjacent properties. They said Monday's standoff began after leadership brought in a construction crew to repair the damage. It wasn't immediately clear why or when the tunnel was constructed. And House Speaker Mike Johnson meeting with Taiwan's new de facto ambassador to the U.S. on Tuesday. It comes just four days before Taiwan's presidential election. Speaker Johnson said Washington stands shoulder to shoulder with Taiwanese people. The defense of Taiwan is very important to us. We want to deter the Chinese Communist Party and any military provocation. The U.S. Congress stands with our friends and stands for democracy and the principles that you all are trying to advance. Alexander Yu, the new ambassador of Taiwan, replaces Xiaobi Gim. Gim is running to be vice president of Taiwan. Beijing is lashing out at the visit. A foreign ministry spokesperson accusing the U.S. of sending the wrong signal. Even though the U.S. doesn't have formal diplomatic ties with Taiwan, Washington is the island's most important arms supplier. The Chinese regime sees Taiwan as part of its own territory, despite never having ruled the island. Beijing staged military drills around Taiwan last year during former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit. The Chinese regime and the U.S. are resuming military talks. The discussions were put on hold after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in the summer of 2022. Officials say the talks are crucial in preventing an escalation of competition between the two nations into direct conflict. The talks were held at the Pentagon yesterday. Representatives from both sides talked about arranging future meetings between their military officers. There were discussions about the potential scheduling of a meeting between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, currently hospitalized, and the newly appointed Chinese Defense Minister Dong Jun. Dong is a former naval commander. He took on his role in late December after his predecessor, Li Shang-Fu, was removed from office. And in more China news, as Taiwan gears up for the presidential election this Saturday, voters are feeling the pressure. The Chinese regime is wielding both sticks and carrots to sway their decisions. What are the tactics? And how will election results shape future relations between China and Taiwan? That and more coming up tonight at 9.30 Eastern Time on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Coming up, from remote control to AI-powered dashboards, see what automakers are showcasing at CES in Las Vegas. And the World Economic Forum says AI misinformation is the world's largest short-term threat. We bring you more on their new global risk report, more shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for the latest on spending bill negotiations. Senate Republicans said yesterday that a short-term funding measure will be needed. This to avert a partial federal government shutdown that would begin on January 19th. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on that and the role the border is playing in the talks. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell told reporters that lawmakers will obviously need a short-term continuing resolution, or CR, 
McConnell says it will allow bipartisan negotiators from both chambers time to agree on full-year 2024 spending bills. Senator John Thune also told reporters Tuesday that lawmakers would most likely need a CR that lasts until sometime in March. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson agreed to a $1.59 trillion spending deal on Sunday, but now must work to get it passed. Under the current arrangement, funding will expire on January 19th for federal programs involving transportation, housing, agriculture, energy, veterans, and military construction. Funding for other parts of the government, including defense, will continue through February 2nd. House Speaker Johnson said the deal he made was the best deal they could broker under the circumstances. This is not uh, what we all want. It's not the, uh, the best deal that we could get if we were in charge of both chambers and had the White House. Representative Carlos Jimenez says a small minority is preventing Republican cooperation. We should be winning together and winning the majority, and somehow we just can't be together. We can't get our act together. Congressman Don Bacon says not being able to count on what the budget's going to be is hard on the military and all the federal agencies. We have, we have divided government. A lot of folks think we can just demand what we want. We have one half of one third of government under our control. The Schumer-Johnson deal is opposed by conservative Republicans in both the House and Senate. They want spending cuts and border security. Congressman Matt Rosendale is holding a shut down the border or shut down the government press conference on Wednesday. He will be joined by Senators Rick Scott, Mike Lee, and Ron Johnson, and by Congressmen Matt Gates and Bob Good. Representative Jody Arrington says nobody wants a shutdown. Don't shut the government down if you can help it. And there are only some very rare exceptions and extenuating circumstances. The border is one of those. Senator Roger Marshall says 10 million people have crossed the border illegally since Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and President Joe Biden took office, and that 300,000 Americans have died from fentanyl poisoning or opioid poisoning. Our FBI director says all the warning lights are now blinking. This is why we should fire Secretary Mayorkas today and give Joe Biden the message that he's next. Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas paid a visit to the southern border on Monday. He called on Congress to alleviate the tremendous stress on the broken immigration system and fund under-resourced facilities. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The annual CES Tech Show in Las Vegas is underway, and a range of companies are showing off their latest products. There's something for everyone, especially car lovers. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the new vehicles on display. Mercedes-Benz unveiled its concept CLA-class electric vehicle at CES in Las Vegas on Tuesday. The new ride features an AI-powered dashboard. This technology provides context-based suggestions and talks with users. In the new CLA that is coming out next year, we are then launching a new virtual assistant, which is generative AI based, and it's there to create a more empathic and intuitive way to communicate with your vehicle. Another German automaker is showcasing the concept of remote controlled valet parking. The BMW iX allows the driver to leave the vehicle at a specific drop off and pickup point. BMW says the underlying technology can also be used as an autonomous driving system. 
There are quite a few use cases. We, we mentioned valet parking before, yeah, but um, you can think of other use cases. You can think of business-to-business -business use cases. It could be applied at plants, assembly plants. Um, it could be applied for rental cars. It could be applied for car-sharing vehicles. Technology expert Nicole Scott is taking the new car for a spin. It feels weird. I, I have to admit I'm a bit nervous, um, but like it's interesting like to see the different perspectives because this one feels very fast, but the side angle shows I'm actually driving very slowly. <laughs> BMW isn't the only car company offering remote control. Honda is teaming up with Sony for the latest version of its electric car with AI capabilities. The duo hopes to lead the software transformation of the car industry. Sony Honda Mobility is one of our key initiatives to achieve this, and Honda is fully supporting it. We believe that there is a unique chemical reaction when Sony and Honda collaborate. Jessica Hawk from Microsoft spoke on stage about Sony Honda Mobility's AI assistant. So what's interesting and promising today is that with the introduction of generative AI and cloud-scaled computing, there is unlimited potential to amplify creativity, increase personalization, and transform the in-vehicle experience. Honda also unveiled its new EV lineup. The Japanese car giant presented the Honda Zero Series with two concept models. The automaker also debuted a new H logo exclusively for the new EV models. This new H mark expresses our corporate attitude of going beyond our origin and constantly pursuing new challenges and advancement. CES runs in Las Vegas until Friday, January 12th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The World Economic Forum names AI misinformation as the world's largest short-term threat. Members of the forum spoke on the new Global Risks Report in London today. Europe's risk management leader says AI models can even influence elections. The potential impact on elections worldwide over the next two years is significant, and that could lead to elected governments' legitimacy being put in question. And this, in turn, could, of course, threaten democratic processes, lead to further social polarization, riots, strikes, or even intrastate violence. Today's Global Risks Report comes ahead of this year's Davos Forum, a gathering of political, business, and technology leaders. The forum says that another big global concern is climate change. Its report states extreme weather as the second most pressing short-term risk after misinformation. And NASA's goal of returning to the moon has been delayed. The agency's Artemis program aims to return astronauts to the moon this decade amid a renewed international push for lunar exploration. However, NASA announced Tuesday that the Artemis III mission will not take off until at least September 2026, instead of sometime in 2025. A primary reason for the delay? The development of the SpaceX Starship. The big rocket and spacecraft system had a pair of test flights last year that ended in explosions. NASA's administrator addressed the delay Tuesday. Safety is our top priority. So what I want to tell you is we are adjusting our schedule to target Artemis II for September of 2025 and September of 2026 for Artemis III, which will send humans for the first time to the lunar south pole. I do not have a concern that uh, 
China's going to land before us. Uh, I think that China has a very aggressive plan. I think they would like to land before us, but the fact is that uh, I don't think they will. And in health news, if you are looking for a coffee alternative to boost your morning energy, we may have the solution. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. rely on coffee to emerge from morning grogginess? Do you find yourself needing more and more stronger cups throughout the day to keep your energy elevated? Do you ask yourself, might there be a better way? The good news is there is. After waking up in the morning, the simplest way to invigorate your mind is to drink a glass of warm water. Water replenishes your body with adequate hydration and promotes metabolism and circulation. Fatigue, dizziness and mental fog may be signals of dehydration. Having a nourishing breakfast will revitalize your energy and replenish your mental and physical strength. Here are three ideas. Starting with number one, rice congee or porridge. Cook white rice to a porridge-like consistency by adding plenty of water. In the morning when your body is still inactive and sluggish, having a bowl of congee can warm your stomach. It can provide calories, promote blood circulation and instantly invigorate you. Congee contains various enzymes that aid digestion. Eating congee helps to replenish fluids, prevents blood thickening and prevents constipation. According to a famous physician from the Qing Dynasty, congee is the best supplement in the world. Number 2. Eggs Eggs are an ideal breakfast food. The protein, amino acids and fats they provide contribute an energizing and satiating effect to the body. Additionally, egg yolks are rich in calcium, iron and vitamins. This supplies the brain and nerves with necessary substances, improving memory and enhancing focus. Number 3. Black Sesame Paste Black sesame offers nourishment to the kidneys and liver. This promotes intestinal regularity and supports hair growth and beautiful skin. It can be eaten on an empty stomach making it particularly beneficial for a morning meal. Traditional Chinese medicine holds that black sesame nourishes the kidneys. When kidney chi, which is your vital energy, is sufficient, one feels energetic throughout the day. So there you have it. Start with water, then consider rice congee, eggs or sesame paste to boost your morning energy. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.